Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. You know, this morning in studio, we have with us Reverend Garland Scott Hagler. Good morning, Reverend Hagler. Good morning. How are you? I am great. And yourself? I am doing wonderful this morning. Well, thank you very much for taking out time of your busy schedule to come in and talk to us this morning about the Poor People's Campaign. And I understand you're the D.C. co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So can you tell us what is the Poor People's Campaign? we just get started right into it. Sure. Well, the Poor People's Campaign is really uh, Reverend uh, uh, Dr. William Barber uh, and and Liz Theo, and Reverend Liz Theo Harris are uh, the national uh, co-chairs of that. Uh, and clearly what it is is a continuation of the work that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, had um, attempted to carry out and was carrying out when he was killed uh, in 1968. And so here we stand right now at a political juncture in this country where it seems that the issues around race and the issues around poor folks and the issues around uh, people who are on the margins are not being addressed in the political nature and the structure of this country. And so the Poor People's Campaign is really sort of moving in order to organize those constituencies of people and to bring the issues to the forefront that should be there in part, as a part of our political discussion in this country. The only thing, Reverend Hagler, is that I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, and I grew up on a mountaintop, and there were, we were black and white. We were all poor. And there was race, uh, poverty didn't seem to have a, a race. It didn't, it didn't make a difference. It didn't discriminate. Well, I mean, that's true, and that's always been the case. But the issue it has been is that those in political power have racialized poverty. In other words, get people to think of poverty as black folks or poverty as brown folks uh, and forget about that poverty sort of moves across all of these different uh, sectors of the community. One thing that we forget in this country is the history of this country. Most of us don't really know the history of this country. And that you, Before you give me the history, if you could. Aren't there more poor white people than black people? Of course, because there's more white people in this country, (laughs) right? But the issue has been is that when you look at the history of this country, poor folk, black and white, indentured, free, and enslaved, came together numerous times and created insurrections in this country against those who were trying to control uh, the interests and the economic interests of the country. And so in a sense, you know, as, as there's a strong suggestion that the invention of the middle class becomes a ploy so that you could separate those who are poor from those who are rich by a buffer of people in the middle who have aspirations and hopes someday that they'll be rich. And therefore, they really, and again, subjugate the poor, racialize the poor, all those other types of things that basically, so the, so the country as a whole never addressed these kinds of economic issues. So when you racialize the poor and you say it's a black and brown people's problem, then you get white folks that say, oh, that's, even if they're poor, that's a black and brown people problem. That's not our problem. That's right. That's right. I mean, just think about when 
Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care. Right. You had white folks that said, I can't stand that Obamacare, but I like this affordable health care. Right. But it was one and the same. But all you had to do was attach a name to it, racialize it, and therefore you could basically play upon the sort of the racial proclivities of the country uh, to turn people against what was beneficial for them. I can never understand why people would, except for race, I couldn't understand why people would vote for somebody that would do things or vote for policies that would hurt them. Because people don't read. People don't read. People don't understand the historical narrative of this country and exactly how this country has played poor folk against poor folk so that rich folk can remain rich. Okay. When I taught school in New York at City University, I taught mathematics. And that was the first time I got with Puerto Ricanians and blacks. And it was clear to us when we would sit down with the Puerto Ricans that the people in power were playing us against each other. We all pulled. Okay, all, all, all looking for their fame bread crumbs, and if we if we got us fighting each other, then we cannot then direct ourselves to them to get more bread crumbs, if you will. Oh, sure, that's right. I mean, that's always the, years ago we were organizing the meatpacking plant, the meat slaughterhouse in Tar Hill, North Carolina, the uh, Smithfield plant, okay. uh, and the workforce was split fifty fifty, fifty percent black, fifty percent Latino, who didn't get along. Everybody in management was white. When we brought people together to begin to organize the plant, we brought equal number of Latinos in with equal number of blacks and asked them each, what have you heard about the other person? And so the Latinos would say, well, black folks don't want to work. They're lazy. Uh, they don't like us, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Where would you hear that from? Oh, the boss told us that. Okay. And black folks, oh, the Latinos are here to take our jobs, and they're going to undercut us and underbid us. Where would you hear that from? The boss man said that. What what complexion is the boss man? He's white. I said, oh, and so all of you, so he's selling you a bill of goods to get you to fight each other so that he can remain in power, and you and you are prevented from organizing a union and getting better pay, more benefits. <laughs> That's right. Better working conditions. That's right. Okay. The game is played. That's the way to play the game. Unfortunately. And, and it's part of us sort of like we got to get beyond the sort of the, 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 the narratives that exist. We got to begin to look be, beyond the veneer, the, the, the superficial things, and begin to really understand what is as, at play in this country. It's just like right now, uh, this character in the White House, he understood that he could play upon the racial dynamics and basically work the electoral college to get there. And he did. Mm -hmm. Based upon people's fear based upon uh, the fact that they felt that uh, uh, the White House was occupied for eight years by a black person, and therefore there was something that was drastically wrong with the country that needed to be correct. I always tell this story very quickly as I was trying to explain to people uh, what had happened in terms of the election. I said, when I came out of seminary, there was a woman behind me, class behind me, white woman, considered herself progressive. I was graduating. She knocks on my door, and she says, I'm thinking about renting your apartment next year. Can I see it? I said, sure. She walks off through the apartment, and she gets to the front door, and she says, I think I will rent it because, after all, I can fumigate it. She never, oh. she never thought of what came out of her mouth. But that's the issue, is that after eight years of a black man in the White House, you could sell the bill of goods for white folks to fumigate the nation. And the White House, he went in there and painted and did a whole lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> right? The, the, again, race. Race and economics. Jesus. Okay. So what is the Poor People's Campaign doing? And well, before we go that, I've often believed that Martin Luther King was killed because he was attacking the economics. They could have let him live as long as he was talking about civil rights. But when he started dealing with economic rights, 
and um, the sanitation workers and trying to get them better pay and everything else, somebody killed him. Oh, Is there sure. any? Do you see any relationship to that? Oh, I think there's clearly a relationship to that. I mean, one of the things when he came out a year earlier against the war in Vietnam and his whole accusation around the war in Vietnam was that you had abandoned the, the social programs at home in order to fund a war in Southeast Asia. Okay. Uh, and so he spoke out against that. So, again, it was, it was automatically from that point on attacking what was happening in terms of the, the economics of the country, where it was being directed to who it was being directed. He made a statement also that the uh, war on poverty had been shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam. And, uh, again, sort of seeing that relationship or lack of relationship between what was going on here, the impoverishment that was going on here, the, the dual system, sometimes the tri-system that existed in terms of people being discriminated against, in terms of education, access to capital, employment, places in which they live, all of those types of things. And so, and so again, it was this issue, this issue, particularly when he called upon white folks and Latino folks and Native folks to join in on this poor people's campaign was a thing that folks said, no, we, we got to kill We got to get rid of them, right? I don't know if you know of the Bacon, Bacon's Rebellion in, in Virginia. No. Uh, well, Bacon, Bacon was somebody that felt slighted by the king. And so he proceeds to organize. What year are you talking about? 16, I think 1620, something like that. So not Martin Luther King, no. but the King of England. Right, okay. right. Okay. The King of England, right? But, but he, he feels slighted by the King of England in terms of appointment by the king. And so he organizes indentured servants, slaves, and free folks, and they burn down the governor's mansion and basically creates a whole insurrection in Virginia uh, that he ends up getting what he was out for. But at that point, they began to co- put into law all of the regulations that would separate people by race in, 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 as a prevention of them ever getting back together and creating that type of scenario. So protecting the economic system is critical for the Trumps of the world, for the one percenters. And what's happening now in the world, not just the U.S., is that this inequality is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, where three people in the world have the same asset, same net worth that 50 percent of the people in the world have. That's right. That's right. And it's a matter of how do we hold on to it? And it's the idea that this 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 idea of private property is and, and because and because this is the thing. If my assumption around private property is that if I allow you to have something, then that's something that I don't have. Therefore, I got to prevent you from having it in order for me to have it. And that's the mentality. It's it's not it's not that the pie is is boundless. It's the idea that the pie is limited. So if you get a slice out of the pie, then I have one less slice, and therefore I got to control the whole pie. But if if you can only eat one slice of pie, why do you need the whole pie? I mean, why do you need more and more and more? That's what I've always been problematic with this capitalistic system. Sure. Well, remember a, year, a few years ago after President Obama did the State of the Union address, there was the there was the Rendell, the governor out of Louisiana. And he came on as a response, and he said something that I thought was very interesting and I thought was truth-telling for once. He said, the president wants you to think that we're a country of have and have-nots. We Republicans believe that we are a country of haves and hope to have. Okay. Okay. 
Yep. Right? So that's the middle class. The hope to have is the middle class that basically will penalize the poor out of fear that if they don't penalize the poor, that they will have less and less on their plate as they try to aspire to become the 1%. Well, going and getting my MBA, I wanted to move into the middle class or working in Ford, Dearborn on the plant with moving into middle class. So the, the dream of going from poor to middle class, I don't know, it's every poor person's dream, I would imagine, mm-hmm. or most, okay? And then from middle class to wealthy, and folks like the guy with Microsoft, he moved from middle class background where he grew up to wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. He's right. in that upper 1%. And so that seems to be the dream in America, but it's harder and harder and harder to get. We're going to take our first break. <laughs> Right, and I knew I could talk to you for two or three hours. So we're going to move. We're going to keep on talking about the poor people's campaign, and then we're going to talk about how this co-op world can help with this, this all of this poverty. Thank you, but brother. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. News Talk, 1450 AM, WOL, and 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's why WOL makes a great sponsor. But you know, I found out it isn't information. Information is access to power. It's only when you put some action to the information, and that's where you get your power. Kind of like gasoline. There's power there, but it isn't until you strike it that you can get power out of it. So we're going to be talking about information today about the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Graylin Hagler, who's in the studio with us this morning, and how the whole co-op movement can help give you power. So what are you doing with the Poor People's Campaign now? What have you been doing, and what do you plan on doing? Well, one of the things we've been doing has been organizing really state-by-state in, in order for people to bring an agenda to their local legislative bodies, uh, usually in terms of the state house, and, and the argument and the belief is is that since most of this policy that we see nationally is acted out uh, statewide, uh, it's uh, necessary that we put pressure on those state assemblies. Also, it's looking at how you activate people at the local level so that people participate in the votes, people get a progressive agenda, progressive understanding in terms of what they need to do, uh, economic understanding in terms of what they need to do. And we're also continue to move to basically empower those who have been disempowered by the political structure, to look at those, for example, who live and, 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 and to work with people who live, for example, in the face of uh, economic, uh, ecological devastation or economic devastation, race and racism, militarism, all of those types of things that negatively impact our society and our world, and to bring people in, in a sense to a common agenda and a common political perspective begin to change the realities that exist in this country. And obviously, nothing can be more apropos right now uh, than to do that, because of where we are are in this country right now, that uh, the types of conditions that we're facing, the types of polarization that is going on. I mean, it's just like the other day, you know, a native 
uh, indigenous person can be surrounded by a screaming mob of white males, and somehow uh, the country finds uh, five uh, Israelites to blame it on. When uh, when we've seen um, these white males gather in, in historically, I mean that was the issue that basically uh, white males that forced Indians off their land, white males that gathered together and lynched black folks and brown folks. The uh, uh, same type of scenario, particularly these folks wearing the mega hats surrounding an elder Indian healer, and basically the country at first gets outraged, but then they find a way to excuse the white males. Mm. Well, when we really look at this racism. It seems like it's always economics back underneath it. It's how do you, as you talked about earlier, pit one group of people against the other so you can keep everybody down and get more. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about this private piece that you were talking about, private property. Sure. So what's the opposite from having private property? Because we, you know, growing up in America, it was always, you know, buying a home. It's numero uno on the list of things they're doing, and if you can have some acres, that would be even better. But having land seems to be the thing that is how you get wealth is having land. So what's and, and, and that's been part of the – I mean, when you look at what happens in terms of colonialization, and colonialization is when you have another – country go in and basically take over another country and and basically use it and and exploit it in terms of its minerals in terms of uh, all of its uh, amenities uh, and so that's how colonialism worked well what happens is particularly in terms of the continent of Africa in terms of uh, the continent of south South America Central America all those places where that were indigenous whether it was African indigenous people or native uh, what we refer to as native or Indian indigenous people basically had a collective concept of living together, a communal concept of living together. That land, there was a spiritual character nature to the idea of land, and that land was that which was provided by the creator and therefore could be utilized, can be lived off of, but could not be owned and could not be controlled. And so you look at sort of these, what, what folks like to refer to as primitive um, uh, tribes, but primitive tribes really had a kind of sophistication to them, and, uh, and the sophistication was was that I don't eat until we all eat. Uh, 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 we gleam, we gleam the crops together. We plant the crops together. We 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 hunt together. Uh, we we have roles and assignments in the community, but the community functions because it functions as a communal, uh, in in terms of a communal aspect. So you have uh, folks who arrive from. Europe and basically living on a small uh, geographic tract uh, and have this uh, intense view of private property, uh, private property, and therefore they come into communal societies with their idea of private property uh, and create quote-unquote laws and, and basically rule it through the barrel of a gun or a cannonball uh, and basically impose their, their laws right now and basically take over the land from folks who do not have any sense whatsoever of private ownership of land. That's what's going on right now in Israel. Palestine, uh, is that you have a collective folks who are Palestinians, uh, who have uh, a communal understanding of land, but yet these folks from Europe come in with their idea of private ownership and dispossess Palestinians of their land. I mean, so it continues to go as a clash of worldviews. One is religiously and rigorously privatized, and the other one is more communal. And spiritual, you said it's communal. Mm-hmm. That's why I always watch the Native Americans when you really get into their culture and, and see how they live, and we call them barbaric. Right. <laughs> and, and, and see, if any you from a small, you from a town, I'm from Baltimore. Uh, even though we on my block, there was always a communal aspect, and when I say a communal aspect, 
Somebody needed to borrow something. It came out of your kitchen, over into their kitchen, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, somebody needed some money to pay the light bill. Uh, it came out of the pockets, right? Folks, folks lived together. Folks lived, and their destiny was tied up in, in, in terms of providing survival for one another. That's how we got over. That's why we're still here, right? Even, even the idea of where you go to look for jobs came out of a communal process where somebody uh, uh, happened to tip you off and tell you where they were hiring at, right? And, and, and if you look at it, one of the things that has happened in our so-called modern society uh, is we've gotten more and more privatized, uh, uh, that we don't share the information, that we don't live as communally, that we that we that we don't hold each other up and and keep each other from falling through the cracks, uh, and and so that's something that we got to gain back because that really sort of leads to this whole issue around economic and political survival. Well, in in Bluefield, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child. On our mountaintop, if I went out and did something, okay, I might get smacked. I'm at least going to be told about it, and they're going to call my mom and tell her. And then calling her was, hey, Flory. It wasn't a telephone. <laughs> okay. It was literally calling her. <laughs> Out loud. But my cousin from New York, uh, my mother was from New York. My father was from Bluefield. So my cousin from New York would talk about rent parties. Right. When somebody didn't have rent, they'd give them a party, and they would charge people to come in and they would pay the food and they would have some games and charge and and they would get the money together to help somebody pay their rent. It was very communal, even in a in, in Harlem, in New York. Right. It was very communal. Right. Because we understood that it, it took each other to survive. I got a picture right now where I'm sitting as a little kid between my mother and father, and I remember that picture very well. I got a plate of fried chicken and potato salad in my lap. And 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 that was out of a rent party. Uh, where my parents got dressed up on a Saturday afternoon, and we went over to somebody's house. I didn't know them, had never seen them since. And uh, But the fact is, is that that's what they were doing there, was to make sure that the person was able to pay their rent. Amazing. Amazing. But this is why I like the whole co-op world. And when I got my MBA and all of my formal education, I did not hear anything about co-op. Nothing about this whole co-op. Matter of fact, it was capitalistic. And every decision was around what's the best return for the shareholders, return on investment for the shareholders, return on investment for the shareholders. And so that it was the critical piece was profit, 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 profit. Where in the co-op world, it's people first, planet second, and profit third. And I've been talking about putting politics as four, four piece, that we really got to get into the political side of it also to let people know. So it, the question becomes when we come out of communal and we come out of tribes, how do we get back to working communal so that we can help raise each other up? And see, I would say, though, that the, the political aspect is overarching to it all because it was the political aspect that sold uh, in this country, sold the idea of privatization. I always make the joke, but it's not a really a joke, is that, uh, is that the Congress of the United States is, uh, is uh, the corporation's uh, collective bargaining agent. Uh, they make sure that the corporations remain in charge, the investment bankers, uh, those who make money, loaning money. And if you think about it, one of the things that happens is that, uh, particularly in, in, this, in this system, if you're focused upon private property and, and ownership, therefore you can deny 
access to capital to a certain segments of people based upon race, based upon ge- geography, based upon zip code, uh, and therefore you can keep a group impoverished and therefore exploit it while another group is empowered. That's what, that's what private ownership means, is that, is that you've got to have capital in order to achieve it. So I had somebody on this program tell me I was cynical to say something like that. That there is somebody up there that says, we're not going to loan money to this group of people, or we're not going to allow this group of people to have access to information, to capital, to whatever. And I have never thought about it, and I really thank you for coming on and sharing this with me and the folks online, is I never thought about this whole private piece, that there's only so much of it, it's limited, and therefore, if I let you have some, it means that I can't have it. Okay, that that is how it plays out. Right. right. Uh, the the <clears throat> Donald Trump's father in New York, if he let the blacks own the property, then he can't rent to them. He can't make that money off of them. Okay. So, so part of race and racism is you keep a people exploited. Keep a people exploited. Native Americans, African Americans, brown folks. They even try the Asians. All right. Listen, everybody, we'll be right back. Uh, we'll try to brighten this up a little bit. I'm getting down here with <laughs> the, way, the way the world works, particularly in the U.S., but we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. The program is Everything Cooperative. My name is Vernon Oaks. And the National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program. Uh, NCB was formed in the 80s to help cooperatives throughout the United States by providing financial services, by providing capital, particularly in low-income communities. So we need an NCB. We need a National Cooperative Bank, and they do a great job of helping out in different communities. And Reverend Hagler is our guest today. He's in studio, and we've been talking about private property and communal property and how folks with private property, the one percenters, if you will, and the middle class folks will want to make sure that other people doesn't get, don't get any property because if they get property, that means it's less for them. So how do we resist this? How do we change it? And I think it's a matter of beginning to get people to recognize that their destiny is really in, in, is a part of somebody else's destiny. In other words, we rise together as a community or we fall together as a community uh, to look at it in, in those terms. Because one of the things is that even out, we, we move from private property to what I call individualistic thinking. And individualistic thinking is as, de- as defeatist as, uh, as private property. Right now, we're dealing with all the furloughs and people working without pay for the federal government, those who have not been to work. Do you realize that if those, federal, those government employees had walked out on strike 48 hours into the shutdown, it would have been over with the next day? Uh, but because people sat there and were worried about their pension, their job, et cetera, it's dragging on and on and on and on. But the fact is, is that you could close the government for real and you're going to be back to work. What are they going to do? Going to fire every government employee? I don't think so, because then you don't have a government. Uh, and so it's a, part, it's a part of realizing that if we don't stand together, but we're, we're trained in a sort of this individualistic thinking, we'll always be exploited and we'll always be manipulated and we'll always be moved around because somebody else is going to move us as, as chess pieces on their board. <laughs> 
Okay. So how do we resist it, though? I mean, it would be great if the government workers could come together, Mm -hmm. literally, and say they've sued the government, but just stop working. You stop working, right? (laughs) It'll, it'll, It'll be decided overnight. But the thing is, what I'm pointing at is that it's a matter of changing our worldview. When you talk about sort of co-ops, co-ops has to do with a communal type of thinking. Right. Right? That you're all functioning together. You're all working together. You're all looking out for each other's interests because you all have an interest in common. Right. Right? I mean, so that's the part that you get. we got to get back to is sort of like that kind of collective thinking, which does not really – is not really compatible with a capitalist system that has folks thinking about as individuals and that if you get it, that means I don't have it, and so i got to get it before you get it, and I can't share it with you because if I share it with you, then I'm going to have less. I mean, that's the sort of capitalist thing. So we got to move beyond. When we look at Genesis, we always talk, talk, talk about Genesis, and I, and I always have problems with preachers the way they talk about Genesis, because Genesis is really an existential anthropological myth that leads us into storytelling, uh, leads us into understanding some truths. And one of the basic truths there is that everything existed in the garden that was necessary for life. But the fact is, is that human ego and human greed started getting the best of themselves because folks began to ask, and that's Adam and Eve, the the sort of mythological character there, Adam and Eve, is there more? Can we have more? Can we get more? Is there something that is being hidden from us uh, that can basically give us the edge up? In this, in this whole environment. But everything was in the garden that was needed. And folks uh, just needed to sort of live in harmony with what was created for them. So if we can learn how to live in harmony together, the, the basic ethical values of co-op are honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for one another. So if we live in those kind of value systems, which is very spiritual, but caring for one another, right. uh, being honest, being open, and I... I wonder how what our government, Congress, and the White House would look like if they had those value systems, for right. openness and honesty, That's as right. an example. And the reason I have started to love this model of co-op, I learned about it because I'm a property manager. So I started managing housing co-ops. And I have a 16-unit senior housing co-op. I've been managing that for 18 years uh, in Shaw. So the, the whole Shaw area has come up okay, right. uh, around them. But these seniors... I watched them look each other in the eye and said, you, you got to clean your house. We're not, we're not having roaches up in here. Sure. Okay. And if you don't clean it, you're gone. I've seen them hold each other accountable for the good of the group. Everything is done for the good of the group. And I've always watched at one point, I think at best we had is a high school education person there, but they can learn how to manage and run a business and do it extremely well. So this is why I like this whole co-op world. And how do we get people to know about this communal thing, go back to our ancestry? Because this came over from West Africa and Southern Africa. It's all of the tribe that was already here with the Native Americans. And, and, and it's particularly people who are oppressed. We have been conditioned in dis- into distrusting our neighbor. You know, I think you've heard this before where some folks get so conditioned that they think that the white man's ice is colder. 
Okay, I haven't heard it, but I okay, I got it. I mean, I mean but what I'm getting, what okay. I'm getting at is is not looking to yourself for the answer, but looking to someone else for the answer because that's a way in which the sort of the, the models of power and empowerment are set up, and and validation is created, and so it's a matter of sort of teaching folks how to look to themselves. To in some ways, to go back to the old concepts of neighborhood, village, that uh, that basically we 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 learn to. Uh, uh, build uh, for each other and and construct uh, uh, a whole community out of our understanding and our relationship with each other. That's that's what the struggle is, to sort of begin to create a whole other model of seeing the world, a model that should not be foreign to any of us, uh, but a model that has been uh, uh, really sort of deprecated in, in, in life because the, the, the whole conditioning has been something that has caused us to despise that model of collectivism. So what are you doing in the Poor People's Campaign now to help change this worldview, to get politically, uh, to change where people will make decisions that's best for them? And that's the issue, because what we're saying is that it's not enough for like me and other folks who uh, to talk on behalf of somebody. Uh, somebody can talk on behalf of themselves. The, uh, the person on TANF can talk on behalf of themselves. The mm-hmm. single mother can talk on behalf of themselves and can educate all the rest of us. Now, the issue is, is we got to have an open ear and an open heart uh, to receive the lessons that, uh, that folks are trying to teach us and therefore to come together and say, yeah, uh, not only do we hear what you're saying, but we join in solidarity where, where you, where you want to go. I, I got locked up in June. Uh, with with eight other preachers for praying in front of the Supreme Court on the day in which the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled uh, that uh, Ohio could purge its voting rolls. Uh, and, and one of the lessons of that, as we were held overnight into the next day, uh, was to go to D.C. Central Cell Block and to see that Central Cell Block rat-infested, roach-infested, no place to sleep, no place where you're free from vermin uh, and filth, uh, and and to realize that all of the neighborhoods that are being gentrified, those were the people in Central Cell Block that had been rounded up by MPD overnight for little frivolous things that tickets should have been written for. But the issue is that they're breaking up neighborhoods and removing people from neighborhoods so that speculators and investors can get those neighborhoods. Uh, and so that's what's going on. I mean, think about Think about uh, Thomas Circle. You, you, you remember Thomas Circle when you came to town? Right. Right? It was filled with the prostitutes. Right? It, was, it, was, it was the place where the women hung out and, uh, uh, and, and nobody wanted to live down there. Well, 1986 is when I came here, and it was, that was still happening, 14th Street. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, right? And so, but just think about it. How do you magically clean up open-air drug markets and prostitution? How does that happen, right? It functions for years, and then all of a sudden, when when speculators and investors decide that it's time to move in because they've basically driven down property and have harassed people's lives so terribly that they get to a point where they can basically buy it at a fire sale, uh, all of a sudden then you don't have one prostitute on the street and you don't have one open-air drug market on the street. 
overnight. It happened in Boston South End. It happened in, you know, down 14th Street. Because what really is, what really happens, I hate to say it's a conspira- conspiracy, but it is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of economics uh, that basically takes over communities as you basically, as communities become more desirable, you displace those populations and you find all kinds of political means and economic means with which to displace those communities. What do we do now? Organize, resist, agitate, uh, sit in. Uh, I'm still on trial, uh, and uh, my trial is not until May. Uh, very interesting thing happened in my trial. I've got to tell you this because uh, in, in not only mine but all eight of us, uh, they confiscated our passports. Uh, so we can't leave the country. Uh, and uh, they're holding our passports. And even though we haven't had a trial yet, we got to report to the court every single week uh, in order not to be rearrested. Uh, and, uh, and so and this is for praying in front of the Supreme Court uh, on the day in which they allowed the purging of Ohio's voting rolls, which only shows us that the battle is, one, to be vigilant, uh, to raise up the kinds of issues and concepts that you're talking about on this show around co-ops and what does co-ops mean and, and how we can function uh, communally. Uh, right now, uh, one of the groups that I'm engaged with in Power DC continues to talk about and deal with co-ops and, and talk about those issues, and they were trying to take over uh, uh, the area down where the old Cremel School is, uh, down Ivy City, and, and build some cooperative housing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, they got beat out because they was going to put private condos in there, right, uh, And uh, because they didn't want to have uh, these types of innovative concepts that were going to engage people and involve people in planning their own community uh, and creating the kinds of spaces and the kind of atmosphere that was going to be beneficial to the history as well as, of the history of the community as well as the number of people who were going to, the people that were going to be living there. So all those types of things happen over and over again. And as you know, nobody was interested in Ivory City. Uh, at one until point, until somebody got interested, until somebody got interested in Ivy City, right? Yeah. And then all and all the buildings sat down there vacant, abandoned, grown over, and all of a sudden you got um, the smokehouses and breweries and this and that. And people We're talking about New York Avenue that going out right. of the city That's on right. the right hand side was the old heck department stores warehouse. That's right, and it would sit there empty and vacant and. Terrible for all of these years. Set for all those years, right? Yeah. Right now, yeah. they're, they're loft condos and you name it and what, all, everything they got there. See, one of the things I think we got to do, particularly locally, we got to press upon this government, this DC government, not only DC government, but all around the DMV, that they got to have a model of, if you want to talk about affordable housing, co ops are the way to go. Uh, if you look at many of the neighborhoods and places like New York where basically rents and purchasing is prohibitive, in fact, it is co-ops that have allowed people with, with, with modest incomes to be able to live and function in a place like New York City. We need to talk about and press that upon all of the so-called political leadership in the DMV, that this has to be a reality if we're really going to be a part of uh, addressing affordable housing and making sure that people are economically able to stay in place. So right now i got to give a shout-out to Anita. Barnes, Councilwoman Anita Barnes, she's created the Limited Equity Cooperative Task Force, which I'm honored to be on, to look at how do you preserve limited equity co-ops for affordable housing and how do you produce more. There haven't been many produced in the last uh, probably 20 years. Right. They've just not been produced for the reasons that you talked about. Uh, trying to get the capital, okay, can use tax credits to do co-ops. So to get in that capital, if you can't get the capital, you cannot build them. Right. If you can't build them, then people won't buy them. All right. So 
we're almost at the end. We're going to go into <laughs> our final break. And what I want to what I want to get to when we get back, if you could tell the folks out there how to get involved with the Poor People's Campaign, how do you organize and resist and agitate so that we can both train people about this communal way and get them back to what home looks like for me and perhaps for them too in their neighborhoods and their families. The other part in Bluefield, I mean, we had a central family, the Oaks family, if you will, but anybody that came by could eat at our table. Right. Okay. Uh, and we, it was, it was this sort of, everybody was part of a family. It was this extended family that we just helped each other. Yep. And we just really have to get back to that. That's right. But we'll talk more about that when we on the other side of the break. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Reverend Hagler is our guest today. We've been talking about the Poor People's Campaign and just poor people and this whole sense of private ownership of property and versus communal ownership of property and how we have to organize, resist, and agitate. So I wanted to get back in this last 12 minutes or so to talk about what are the kinds of things that the Poor People Campaign has been doing under Reverend Barber, taking up Reverend Martin Luther King's Poor People Drive of 50 years ago. What are the kinds of things you've been doing, and what specifically are you going to be doing here in the future so we can get more people involved? Sure. One of the things that we've been doing is, one is, you know, one of the things that Reverend Barber says is it's one thing to be loud and wrong, uh, and so we don't want to be loud and wrong, so we have also spent time uh, really looking at the various issues from a very rational and clear point of view, such as what is happening around the country in terms of voting rights and the denial of people to vote, the the purging of the roles uh, uh, that are taking place in many, many states. And we've seen the type of unrest around uh, voting that have taken place in this last election, for example, how you were waiting to see, almost with bated breath in terms of who was going to be elected and what was done in terms of what votes were thrown out, right? I mean, so those are the types of things that we want that we want to do is sort of also look at the relationship between militarism and what takes place in terms of the economics at home, uh, in terms of the kinds of ecological devastation that's taking place not only uh, in urban areas but also in rural areas, uh, to look at the kinds of things that really begin to impact people's lives in a negative way, and to organize out of those constituencies a movement that's going to press the case politically and not just politically, but press the case to realize that we're strong enough and there's enough of us that we are virtually the revolution of tomorrow if we really begin to visualize ourselves in that way, uh, that we are the people, uh, as you pointed out, you sort of like the number of white folks that are poor, the number of black folks that are poor, the number of brown folks that are poor, the, you know, you go right on down the line. And when you look at the number of folks that exist who really, are, in a sense, prop up the, the society because, in a sense, we're kept in this individualistic thinking that we don't think communally, but we really become a revolutionary force where and the clarity is there. Uh, and that's what folks do not want to have happen, those in power, that is, is that people begin to understand that they can change the political realities, they can change the economic realities if we only come together and begin to think through a prism of the, of the great issues that are before us. So the wealthy created Citizens, Citizen United so that they could get more and more money, so they could elect the politicians that they wanted that would create the policies that they wanted would give them more money, like the tax law. That's right. just change. 
its biggest transfer of wealth since slavery. Okay, this transfer, this transferring money from <laughs> from everyday people to the wealth to the sure. wealthy in the U.S. This this whole tax piece that they just passed. So now Citizen United is still in, but the real power in a democracy is the people. It's the people. So if fifty percent of the people are poor. That's beyond poor. Okay, if fifty percent of people are poor, if we can get them together to see what the issues are, to understand the issues, and vote for people then that will create policies that are best for them, then that would be the the revolution you're talking about. Right. And see, part of it is to remember that folks like Thomas Jefferson, slave owner, rapist, but Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, wanted a republic because he didn't want a direct democracy. Because he said, can you imagine if people had the power to tell us what to do? And, 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 and that's the issue that we got to undo is to go back and, yes, say, yes, the people should have the power to basically control their own destiny, their own lives, and the outcome of their lives. And, and that's what it is really about in terms of organizing and, and, and bringing people together and activating people, teaching people how to agitate teaching people how to disturb the system and to create the disruption in the system because the system needs to be disrupted. Yeah, but if you're going to agitate and resist, then isn't that, I think I heard you say earlier, that's illegal? Well, it's always illegal. Remember, you know, it was illegal to challenge Jim Crow because that was the law. Right. So anybody who challenged it was participating in the illegalities. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, it, it, when when King wrote the letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, preachers and rabbis were criticizing him for breaking the law. Right. And it was the laws of Jim Crow. It was the laws that kept people from voting. Uh, it was those types of things. So he had to engage the illegality of resistance in order to challenge the legality of oppression, yes. because oppression always shroud itself in the law. That's how you steal land. You walk in and say, it's the law. We got a court system here. You don't own the land. Uh, we own the land. Uh, you can't be on this land any longer. It's trespassing. Right. So, so you move you to the reservation, move you to the reservation, the Indian Removal Act of Andrew Jackson and all those other. The trail of tears, just right? kill people. But also, to remember this, what Andrew Jackson was doing, and I'm just going to uh, diverge a little bit, what Andrew Jackson was doing in the Indian Removal Acts was to create more plantation territory so that they could expand the slave system. Wow. All right. I hadn't gotten that in my history books. Okay. <laughs> okay. But I can see it clearly. All right. So what do we do now? What are some of the specific kinds of things? Now, I know that at your church you had something called... Music for poor people's campaign, or justice jam, jamming for justice. There it is, jamming for justice. Jamming and for justice. We're continuing to do that. Uh, if you want to get involved with the poor people's campaign, you can go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org, and you can sign up in terms of whatever state you're in, uh, whether it's D.C. Or, or Maryland. And and we and those of us who live in D.C., we recognize D.C. as a state. I must add, uh, uh, it's other folks that don't recognize D.C. as a state. Uh, because we're pushing towards statehood. Uh, and, uh, and and so you can go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org and sign up there to get involved, and you will get communication out from wherever you're located in terms of what's going on in, 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 local, uh, in, in local jurisdictions. I mean, one of the things that's going to happen is that we're, we're organizing right now to deliver demand letters uh, to local legislative bodies. Um, uh, and in our case, we will deliver that to the city council and the mayor in Washington, D.C., but in 
Maryland, it will go to the state house, and Virginia it will go to wherever the state house is uh, in Richmond, obviously. Um, but we, it's it's going to be demands that grow out of the constituency of people of those local geographical regions. Now, one of the things we're going to be saying to D.C., D.C. City Council and the mayor, how dare you overturn votes? Uh, they overturned Initiative 77 after people voted for it, uh, basically nullified the vote. So it is highly hypocritical of uh, the D.C. Uh, City Council and the mayor to talk about statehood on one hand and having a vote on one hand and that Congress should not interfere in our affairs on one hand, and then they nullify the votes of the voters. Uh, it is hypocritical and is immoral and unethical on the part of this city council. Okay. So I can go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org to find out information. Yes. I can. They, they also tell me about, or they give me notices for jamming for justice. That's right. Also, and, this summer I went to some trainings for Poor People's Campaign to find out what's happening in, How many times you get arrested? I did not get arrested. <laughs> I got to tell you, at 71 years though, I've been fighting hard not to be arrested. So putting myself in a place where I would be arrested was difficult. Maybe next summer I'll be able to overcome that. But not if you explain these these roaches and rats. It'll be <laughs> well, that, that was special treatment for us because we went to the Supreme Court. Because usually what, what happened at the arrest at the Capitol building was that you were held for maybe two hours and released and had to pay a $50 fine. Uh, but in our case, because we were challenging a decision through prayer... Uh, that the Supreme Court had made. Uh, they were infuriated that we would dare, as people of color, as women, stand up and say, this is highly immoral for this court, this court to make a decision that actual uh, black people can be purged off the roll, off the voting rolls in Ohio, which opens the door to people being purged off of voting rolls all across the country. Right. North Carolina, South Carolina, yep. everywhere. Okay. What are some specific kinds of things? We're going to have a couple more minutes that you're going to be doing this coming year? Well, we're going to be, like I said, uh, we're going to be delivering uh, letters of demand to uh, legislative bodies, and we urge you to become a part of that. Become a part of the discussion in terms of what those letters of demand look like, uh, because we want people's voices. Uh, this is not something that we want to do from the top down. It's something that we want to have take uh, be engaged from the bottom up. So we want people who have been impacted by certain situations, by certain economic uh, situations, by the politics of their of their local jurisdiction, to really uh, voice their concerns and 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 criticism and solutions uh, for uh, for basically dealing with the issues that they're facing. And so that becomes a sort of a part of the grassroots democratic process that we are really trying to activate people towards. So uh, I like this sort of getting people together to say, here's the solutions to the problems that we see in our community. When I saw uh, Reverend Barber at Pennsylvania Baptist Church last summer, he had somebody from the teachers, somebody from taxi drivers, somebody from health care. And what I wanted to do was get up there and say that, all right, you're all having problems in the company you're with. Start your own company. Start your own co-op. Mm-hmm. Four or five of you get together and we'll teach you how and get you the technology to sure. figure out how you start your own and then have control of your own destiny. And, and that's part of us. We need to learn from immigrant groups. And one of the yes. things, right, and the reason I say we need to learn from immigrant groups, instead of fighting it, 
learn from them because immigrants basically in the countries that they're in, they got to have three or four gigs to survive. And so then they come here to the United States with that same entrepreneurial spirit right. and, and work within their communities and basically assemble the kind of uh, capital that needs to be assembled and to basically move forth with business uh, and do it cooperatively. Right. Right. And so that's a part of us really looking at it and beginning to understand that. So let us not be resistant to immigrants, but let us also be educated by the spirit of immigrants. What's your last word, Reverend Hacker? My last word is let us continue to organize and do what we need to do and to speak truth to power. Speak truth to power. There you have it, everybody. Thank you for listening today. Uh, we'll be back next Thursday. And please live this week cooperatively.